Hey folks, this is Kevin. Coming up on today's episode, you'll hear David Jacobs. Sam, stop stealing my stuff! I'll fucking kill you! (laughs) That and a whole lot more. But listen, before we dive in, I want to remind you that Risk wants your stories, or the stories of those you know, or even just people you know of. We're looking for stories about everything. Stories about crime, homelessness, family, love, abuse, addiction, discoveries, prejudice, leadership, mental illness, suicide, therapy, poverty, spiritual breakthroughs or breakdowns, injuries, mysteries, war, and more. If you or anyone you know or or anyone you know of has an amazing story, go to risk-show.com slash submissions today. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the Drifting Boulders behind me now, because of course it is. I mean, you've been wondering when in hell we'd finally get the Drifting Boulders on here, and and all I can say is you're goddamn very well aware of when we'll get them on now, because it's now. Today's episode is a very special one because it is live from Brown and RISD. Live from the campus of Brown University and featuring students from the nearby Rhode Island School of Design. It's the latest of our college campus shows because college kids are so, well, they take so many risks and really examine the lives that they're leading. And they're all so thrilled to see their friends getting up on stage and sharing this stuff. In fact, you know what would make sense? It would make sense if this show was going to at least one college per month. At least. So if you want Risk to come to your school or institution, write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. One of the things that we thought was really cool was that now on this particular campus we visited, they have something called Brown Storytellers. Kind of sounds like a very specific fetish of mine, but it's a storytelling group there on campus. There should be a hell of a lot more of that. If you want some coaching on how to create your own storytelling group or storytelling show, take a Skype session one-on-one with me. Just go to thestorystudio.org. All right, and to start us off here today, we're going to feature one of those members of Brown Storytellers. This is Anna Martin, with a story we call In the Tummy of Ting the Tabby. La, 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 So the following is a partial and incomplete list of things I have held in my hands at various points in my life. Number one, another hand. This first happened to me with my second grade boyfriend, Dave Newman, who later broke up with me at recess by punting a kickball in my face and then saying and then saying he didn't want to date anyone who couldn't catch. (laughs) David's hands were always sweaty and smelled like pepperoni, and I'm not bitter, so let's just move on. (laughs) To number two. 
I've held my hands uh, a flower. I was the garden in my school's production of The Secret Garden. Uh, that's a silent role that's generally played by scenery. Uh, <laughs> but it's a very, a very crucial role. A secret garden without a garden is just a secret, and that's less fun for everyone. <laughs> and third, I have held in my hands a dog placenta. <laughs> Uh, now, I wish I was being metaphorical or hyperbolic with that, but no, I, I literally mean a placenta. In the most visceral and medical and smelly sense of the word, I grasped the gelatinous encasing of a fetus between my fingers. And when I tell people this, they're usually like very surprised at how straightforward I'm being, but that's because I have distance. And because I've washed my hands, literally, uh, but also metaphorically from the horror that was July 7th, 2012. <laughs> So the summer before my senior year, I was living in Shanghai with my Uncle Paul and Aunt Grace. Um, and they're these urbane and sophisticated Chinese business people who have this awesome and very rare uh, personality combination of being both extremely wealthy and extremely kind. Um, and they have all this wealth, and they like to use it in like various interesting ways. So they have uh, four Dyson ball vacuums. I don't know if you're familiar with what a Dyson ball vacuum is, uh, but it's really this innovation in cleaning technology. It's essentially the Jesus of vacuums. Uh, what, this, what this vacuum does is it pivots on a ball instead of an axis, so you can go around corners or under beds or like behind the TV. It's fascinating, and it's also extremely expensive, and they have four of them. So they're, they're four vacuum kind of people, if that gives you a picture. Uh, and they use these four Dyson ball vacuums to clean their expansive five-bedroom apartment in the city center uh, of Shanghai. Uh, and, and this apartment is uh, very white and very modern and very pointy and very not made for human butts. There is literally no surface in this apartment that feels good to sit on. Uh, my bed was just this blank plastic slab uh, that had one white sheet strewn on top of it. And when I first arrived, this like, totally did not jive with me. I really couldn't get a night's sleep, so I took a pillow from the white couch in the white living room, and I put it on my bed. And I had like a mediocre night's sleep after that, but I awoke to this note, this handwritten note from my uncle on my bedroom door the morning after, and he said, uh, Hey, Anna, hope you're enjoying your first uh, couple nights in Shanghai. I just wanted to let you know that we don't, uh, we don't do pillows here. <laughs> okay, I had a crick in my neck for three months straight, so thank you, Uncle Paul. Uh, but I wasn't spending all my time in my bed or in the apartment. Uh, because of my uncle's business connections, he had finagled me an internship with a high-end porcelain factory that had uh, its headquarters in Shanghai. And my, my job was to write the English product descriptions of their luxury teapot line. Uh, and I don't really know what was going through my head at that moment, but my descriptions ended up sounding kind of like softcore porn. So uh, for one of my descriptions of a teapot, I said something like... Uh, this, this fish teapot with its supple curves, its smooth lines, its seductive features will truly make your drinking experience extraordinary. Uh, and it was fine that it was super weird that I was doing that because no one else in the office spoke English. I was the only person who spoke English. And this was very difficult because I actually didn't speak any Chinese besides... Uh, or even though I am half Chinese, I don't speak any Mandarin. In fact, the only two words I knew coming to Shanghai that summer uh, in Chinese were shi gua, which is watermelon, and to, which is head. So <laughs> those two words really didn't give me like ample topics of conversation. So uh, both at my internship and uh, you know meeting general people, I really wasn't speaking to anyone. And that made me feel very lonely. I mean, it was sort of a weird loneliness because I felt like I should feel so at home in this, this country that was essentially my homeland, but I really didn't. I, I felt like an outsider. Uh, and when I went home, I'd like to go home to this apartment after my internship and, and speak with my uncle and aunt, but I worked super long hours, so the apartment was often empty. Or like, it wasn't exactly empty. There was like someone else in the apartment, but that someone wasn't exactly a human, although she was often treated like one. My company was a four-year-old cockapoo named Ting the Tabby. <laughs> And now Tabby is usually a descriptor to uh, talk about cats, but this dog was so thoroughly a house dog that she was essentially a cat, right? She meowed, first of all. Uh, she <laughs> used a litter box. Uh, she didn't go outside ever, and she used those cat scratchy play structure things. Uh, and to make matters even more complicated, my uncle and aunt even referred to her as a cat. So she was sort of this weird hybrid mix 
she was, and I affectionately called her Ting the Tabby Cat Dog. Um, but you know what, I, I honestly didn't care what animal she was. She could have been a hamster for all I cared because she really became my friend, right? Ting didn't speak Chinese or English, and she was always down to snuggle, which I was fine with. So she really, like I said, she really became my friend. But Ting, you know, Ting wasn't just a pet to my uncle and aunt, right? They're childless by choice. They have ample disposable income. So as often happens in these situations, they, they channeled all of their parental affections onto Ting the Tabby Cat Dog. Um, and she became not just their daughter, but really a princess. She was royalty in this household, right? So uh, when they deemed that Ting had a bad day, let's say as bad as you can get by literally never leaving a white living room, uh, <laughs> they would let her sleep on their bed. And then they would sleep on cots on the floor. And every couple hours, they would get up to feed her warm milk from a sippy cup and sing her lullabies such as Twinkle Twinkle Little Ting, which was a favorite. <laughs> or or for, uh, for her dinner each night, uh, they ordered like filet mignons from five-star restaurants. They would cut them up into bite-sized pieces and garnish it with a little milk bone. And then feed it her literally on a silver platter. And then not eat until she took her first bite. <laughs> And then bi-weekly, uh, they took her to these doggy day spas where she got a doggy blowout, which consisted of her reclining in a mineral-infused bath of lavender water and then having a, a professional hairstylist hand-dry her fur. So we're talking, the, Ting the Tabby Cat Dog was spoiled. And if I was a cockapoo, I probably wouldn't get along with Ting, but I'm not a cockapoo, I'm a human, and we got along just fine. <laughs> Uh, you know, and my, my uncle and aunt, they weren't delusional. They understood that the way they were treating Ting was, like, decidedly not normal. So, um, but, you know, they weren't going to stop because it gave them so much joy to see her happy. And it was so easy to know when she was happy because whenever she had any pleasure of any kind, she farted. <laughs> so Ting had major digestion issues, probably because she was eating filet mignon for three meals <laughs> a day. Um, but she had major digestion issues, and she would fart just, like, loudly and explosively. And it was, like, this sulfurous, putrid, egg salad-smelling smell, and it happened so often. Um, but whenever she would fart, what was so weird is that my uncle would claim it was him, right? He'd claim, he'd claim it was him to save her the embarrassment. So, like, we'd be at the dinner table, and we'd be eating, um, and then there'd be this, like, And it would so obviously come from Ting. But my uncle would sort of joke, he'd be like, <laughs> must be my old stomach again, uh, maybe I should invest in some Tums. <laughs> and I'd kind of look at him and be like, if you're going to invest in anything, invest in some goddamn air freshener, because it stinks in here. <laughs> but second of all, like, Tums for Ting the Tabby, let's be real with what's happening here. <laughs> but like I said, Ting was a princess, and everyone knows that princesses don't fart. And like any proper princess, Ting was supposed to be uh, walled off, locked away in this like ivory tower, right, or this like super white apartment. And it gave my, it gave my uncle and aunt, I think, this this sense of safety to know that she was locked away from the common rabble of dogs, right? I mean, she was like she was a princess; she didn't need to associate with those plebeians. Uh, but you know, that wasn't exactly accurate. Ting the Tabby was a flirtatious canine about town. Ting the Tabby had desires and urges that she followed up on. Ting the Tabby was pregnant. A routine vet visit revealed that she was very pregnant and due extremely soon. And this news floored my uncle and aunt. It literally floored my uncle. He fell down. (laughs) But when he got back up and sort of started blinking, uh, (laughs) he locked himself in his study and listened to Sting for like five hours straight. (laughs) And you know when someone's listening to that much Sting, like something's up. Um... But my aunt took sort of like a, a different turn. Uh, she ate a couple chocolate bars and sat in front of the TV. And whenever Ting passed by her, she'd just shake her head and a solitary tear would drip down her face. <laughs> and I, I think what, what was really getting to her was that they didn't know, first of all, how Ting had escaped, uh, but second of all, who the father was. It was like this weird animal version of like Jerry Springer. And, and as I watched this unfold, uh, you know, I felt bad for Ting. But this mourning period really only lasted a couple days. And soon they got really adjusted to this grandparent state that we're now in, right? So they became like super proud grandparents. They threw her a doggy baby shower, complete with a gift registry at PetSmart. Uh, They bought uh, books on dog midwifery, which is a thing. Um, And they also bought her this t-shirt that said, uh, number one mom. (laughs) And when I looked at this, I was like, wait, you know, Uncle Paul, don't you think that's a little uh, premature? And he gasps and he claps his hands over Ting's small ears and he says, Anna, Eliminate that word from your vocabulary. We don't do premature here. <laughs> Especially around Ting. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to touch it. She wore that, she wore that T-shirt like a, a lot. 
<laughs> um, cut to July 7th, 2012. I'm eating Cheetos. I'm watching Chinese television, which is an alliterative and very pleasing experience. You should all try it sometime. Uh, as I'm licking the cheese dust from my fingers, I hear this visceral, human-like scream. And I'm, I'm horrified because I know I'm the only one in this apartment, so it has to be Ting, but I've never heard her make a sound like that. And it's coming from the kitchen, so I run to the kitchen, and curled up on this white linoleum is Ting, and she's writhing in pain, and she's gulping, and she's screaming. And I'm, I'm shocked because I realize that Ting is going into labor, and I am the only person in this apartment. I'm like, I'm going to be real with you. I really like uh, pregnancy documentary TV, right? So my favorites are probably Extreme Pregnancy Trapped in the Ozarks. Really good. Uh, I also really like uh, Pregnant in the Slammer. Um, I'm also a huge fan of I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant, which consists of just hordes of women who steadily gain weight for like 10 months, and then they think they need to go to the bathroom, but no, it's a baby. <laughs> and like, these shows are, are super fun, but they really didn't prepare me for the reality of what was in front of me. As I'm watching her scream and this blood begin to pool and her contractions are starting, I'm like, whoa, this is so crazy. This is such a natural process, right? But there's such unnatural pain. It's like this weird contradiction. And like, I know she's giving life to something, but it looks like she's going to die. And I have this temptation to leave because, you know, I didn't make Ting fraternize with another dog, right? She's not even my, ta- my tabby cat dog. I have no real affiliation towards her. But that's like sort of a fleeting moment because I know that if these pregnancy shows taught me anything, it's to not watch them, first of all, but it's also, t- <laughs> it's also that life is such a beautiful thing, right? And it's exponentially more beautiful when it's, when it's shared with other people. Or dogs. So I roll up my sleeves, I sort of plug my nose, I kneel down, and I stick my hand in between Ting's quaking thighs. I stick it real far up there. I told you that we bought books on dog midwifery, right? I peruse them. (laughs) Um, And I realized that what you have to do with a dog um, is you, like, literally have to stick your hand up their vagina. So... I I push my hand inside, and it's this oozing, warm sensation. It smells terrifyingly like tacos. (laughs) And there's blood everywhere, and it's pooling, and there's this other liquid. I'm not sure what it is. And she's still writhing. Her eyes are sort of, like, rolling back. And and I'm screaming and crying at this point. I think I'm going to vomit. Uh, And just as I'm feeling around these, like, small gelatinous orbs inside, which I assume are the puppies, but I'm not completely sure. In this crazy coincidence of timing, my uncle and aunt arrive. (laughs) Back in the apartment, and I yell from them, like, come to the kitchen! And so (laughs) they come to the kitchen, and I see this, like, you know, cycle of disgust, like, utter disgust, but then, like, gradually getting excited, just like I had gone through. And they, in their work shirts and, like, their khakis, they kneel down, and all three of us now have our hands on Ting, and we're coaxing her, and we're cooing her, and we're like, you're going to get through this, you're going to get through We don't know if she's going to get through it, but we're like, you're going to get through it. And, 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 you know, the contractions, they continue to continue, and the blood's still pooling, and, and finally, my hand's still up there. I feel sort of this orb begin to loosen. I pull it out, I pull it out, I pull it out, and finally, magically, in my hand is this tiny, pink, blinking form. It wasn't cute, though. Why are you? (laughs) It was a puppy. Ting actually gave us four puppies that afternoon, and after we cut the umbilical cord with kitchen shears, um, we swaddled the babies up in a paper towel, and... We, and like it was really weird because Ting got this like super burst of energy um, and she ran around the apartment with her umbilical cord dragging. <laughs> and it was getting like these splatters of blood around this super white apartment and like my aunt was horrified and it took them like four months of intense carpet cleaning to get that stain out. Um, but so after we like caught her and cut off the cord, um, we, we brought her over to the babies and she began to snuggle them. And it was so cute. And it was so domestic and it was so beautiful. And, you know, we were covered in blood. We looked like we were in a Jackson Pollock painting of just red paint. <laughs> well, we're looking at this, you know, we were so proud of Ting. We were so proud of ourselves for getting through this shit. And, you know, it was, it was just a lovely moment. And, uh, like I said, it was that poetic contradiction, right? And, like, I don't know, life is full of that. But it was really cool to see that crystallize in that moment. Uh, despite that crystallization, though, about a week after Ting gave birth, my Uncle Paul took her to the vet and got her neutered because, in his words, we don't do 
multiple pregnancies here. <laughs> Thank you. not even aware that there is a Jesus of vacuums. <laughs> now we know. And, you know, it's a shame that you didn't run into at least someone who had a head like a watermelon <laughs> during that whole time there. I want to bring up our next storyteller. He is actually one of the members of Brown Storytellers, so you can check out those storytelling shows happening on campus here. I want to welcome to the stage Mr. David Jacob. Now, uh, young David Jacobs operated really at two speeds. There was 30 mile an hour David Jacobs. For those of you who don't know, that's the speed limit. I was nice, I was kind, I was funny. I, I, I wasn't the most popular kid in the class, but I had friends, don't worry about me. And, uh, <laughs> Most importantly, I listened to authority and I, and I followed the rules. But then there was also 90 mile an hour David. Now, as you might expect, he had an uncontrollable temper, uh, used expletives gratuitously. And if you saw this, this situation developing, it was an immediate warning of like an emergency evacuation kind of thing. Anyone within like a 10 mile radius probably wanted to get out of the area. In kindergarten, we had this assignment, uh, city and country. We had to turn our classroom into a modern U.S. small town. So we had the, the pancake house and the police station and the firehouse and the post office. And Scott and I had been given the library. Uh, the library was up in the loft. It was this beacon. It was like a city on a hill looking over the rest of the classroom. It was really the cushiest spot. So uh, we put up this fake computer that didn't work. We put up all these old books. And uh, I did a Google image search of librarians. So I, I dressed up in, in a gray sweater vest and a blue button-down denim shirt because that's what I, uh, librarians looked like on Google. Uh, so to me, that was just what it was. And everything was going great. We, we put a lot of effort into it. And I'm looking up into the library, and I see Scott's talking. Now... I don't know that much about libraries, aside from, you know, the uniform that I had just learned about. Uh, but what I did know was that you're supposed to be quiet in a library. Uh, that's how you glean these major uh, realizations from these books, is by, you know, quiet, steady focus. So I approached Scott. I said, Scott, you know, listen, this is the library, not the pancake house, okay? Can we try to keep it down over here? And Scott looks at me confused and says, well, you know, it's our library. We can make whatever rules we want. Now, this was a very interesting point, but I was not in a place for rational debate. So I saw the mechanical pencil to my right, picked it up in my fist and said, Scott, shut up or I'll shove this pencil down your throat. So Scott looked at me. Scott was a, a smaller kid than I was. And he looked at me dead in the eye and he thought about it for a few seconds and then he just got up and walked away. And to this day, I respect the hell out of him for having the balls to just walk away from that. But at the same time, he didn't confront me about it. He didn't make me consider how problematic a thing that was. And not only that, he rewarded me for it. I won. I got my quiet library. In second grade, I... Uh, I hadn't finished this math sheet that I was supposed to finish in class. The Yankees had recently won the World Series, and hell if I was going to focus in math class. And so I'm sitting in there working during recess, and these two girls walk in. And they had finished all the books that they had been assigned at this point, so they were coming in to find some more books to read. And I say that only so you have a sense of the elitist attitude that they entered the room with. <laughs> And from the second they saw me sitting at the table working on this math sheet, I could see their eyes just light up. They, oh, they, they couldn't contain themselves. The laughter just it popped out, and I could feel my face getting red. I was so embarrassed. It was so clear how pathetic they thought I was. And I was about to explode at them when I thought, well, 
Dr. Schwartz once told me, instead of lashing out at people, instead you should write it down, crumple it up, throw it away. And that way you get the release without the repercussions. Now, even at this second grade age, I knew that this was the biggest bullshit I'd ever heard. <laughs> you know, this was a guy who my parents had sent me off to see. They'd seen a uh, 90 mile an hour David manifest himself enough times that they thought professional help was in order. So I hated this man, but I thought if I'm spending all this time, I may as well give him a shot. So I do. So I take a piece of paper and a light blue marker and I go underneath the table where I was working and I write, fucking bitch. <laughs> it seemed doubly potent at the time. So I got it down and then I, I'm down there. I crumple it up. I come out from the table. I go over to the trash can in the corner of the classroom and I dig out the empty Cheez-Its box and the New York Times that had been used for paper mache and I dug really deep down and then I placed the fucking bitch down there. <laughs> and I, I left the, the garbage and I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, oh my God, maybe this Dr. Schwartz is a pretty respectable character. Maybe he knows what he's talking about. Uh, but the whole time that episode was going on, the girls were still in the classroom. So they were understandably shocked and horrified. They had just watched me leave my work to go under the table where I wrote a mysterious thing down, crumpled it up, left the space under the table, proudly walked to the trash can, removed items from the trash can, placed it deep down in there, and then covered my tracks. So they did some investigative reporting and uh, they found the fucking bitch. <laughs> and it was too good a scoop they had to take this to my teacher. And Sari knew 30 mile an hour David because she had taught my older brother and she knew my family. I had this great understanding and relationship with her. At the same time, she'd just been handed pretty damning evidence in the form of the fucking bitch. So I was off to go see Principal George. Now, for the sake of this story, the only really important things to know about Principal George is that he had this gorgeous Burt Reynolds mustache uh, that I still, to this day, am very jealous of. And he also had this just liberal ideology to match this ethical culture type school. So he was pretty open-minded when I walked in there and I said, I laid it all out on the table for him. I said, listen, George, uh, I've been having some trouble controlling my anger. And this fella, Dr. Schwartz, said, just write it down. Release without the repercussions. You know, what I just said. He thought about it for a second. And he reached out to Dr. Schwartzman, who I have to assume, said something along the lines of, uh, yeah, that was my terrible idea. My apologies. My bad, my bad. Because George just let me go. And then fourth grade came around, and right before... The school year began I, when I was awaiting this letter showing me, you know, who was going to be in my class, what all the different teachers I would have would be. I got this letter from school telling me that I had this new buddy. We were going to have a, a new kid in fourth grade, and his name was Sam, and it was, I was going to be his familiar face for the first day. Now, Sam is a white Jewish kid from Westchester, New York. Uh, not too tall, but not too short. Not fat, but, you know, a little cushion for the pushing. Um... <laughs> Like sports, but like not too much. Was smart, but like not too smart. Very similar to the way I would have described myself at that age. I noticed that immediately when I met him. It was a little jarring. And, you know, I was still so uncomfortable. I was trying to figure out my own place in the grade. I wasn't trying to pave the way for some kid who was exactly like me. <laughs> what, you know, what if they choose him? So I decided I was going to be welcoming, but not too welcoming. I'd show him where the bathroom was, but I wouldn't tell him, like, the cool lunchroom table. The good thing that happened before fourth grade was that I had finally convinced my mom that Allen Iverson was a reputable enough man that I should be able to wear his basketball shoes. And I don't know if you've ever seen the Allen Iverson Answer Fives, but they are the coolest shoes probably to this day I've ever owned. And I walked into that classroom, and I was walking in on a cloud. I don't know if you know what it feels like to be wearing the coolest shoes in the room, but I do. Because I did that day. 
And I was walking around on that cloud for weeks until one day I saw Sam enter the room and he was walking in on a cloud. And I thought, you know, I recognize that feeling. And I looked down at his shoes and my man was wearing my Iverson Answer 5s. Now, granted, they were a very popular shoe. He was also a new kid, so maybe he wasn't familiar with the rules of swagger jacking. <laughs> I decided I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. A few weeks later, we're choosing what book we want to write our book report on. And I had just read uh, Christopher Paul Curtis's Bud Not Buddy. It's a, a heartwarming and trying tale of a boy's search for his father. And I loved it. I really connected with this book. And so I made a point of going to uh, my teacher very early and saying, I will be writing on Bud Not Buddy. Thank you so much. I can't wait. And the whole class kind of took note of that. And so everybody chooses their book, and it's, you know, somebody chooses Not Bud, Not Buddy, and someone else chooses Not Bud, Not Buddy, and another person Not Bud, Not Buddy, so on and so forth, until we get to the end of the list, and one person just has to choose their book for their book report, and it's Sam, and he chooses Bud, Not Buddy. Now, there was a finite list of books. It's not like he was just pulling from the sky, and that was all he could grab. So I figured, I gotta give him the benefit of the doubt, even though... No one else had picked Bud Not Buddy. Everybody else had kind of respected that I was going to do this incredible analysis and that it wasn't worth touching, but <laughs> he felt ballsy enough to, you know, come in on my territory. But again, he was a new kid. I was supposed to be looking out for him. I'd let it slide. A few weeks after that, though, we were catching one of the last beautiful days of fall. We were out on the baseball diamond, and the top of the inning had just ended. And Sam and I were on the same team. And it's important to remind you here that we are both lefty. If you've never played baseball or haven't played a lot of baseball, you don't know that there are only really two, there only needs to be two lefties on a team. You got like a lefty's great as a pitcher and as a first baseman. But other than that, every other position is played better by a righty. And so Sam is going out onto the field and he sees this lefty glove laying there on the floor and he thinks, oh, I'm sure this doesn't belong to anyone else. This will be harmless. I'll pick this one up and I'll just, he goes out into the field. But I see this happen and I'm thinking, but not buddy. I'm thinking of my Iverson answer fives and all of our similarities. And I just yell at him. I say, Sam, stop stealing my stuff. I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> And so Sam looks back at me, smiling at first, hoping that I'm just kidding. <laughs> that I won't actually kill him over this baseball glove. But after looking into my eyes for only a second, he knew that there was not e I wasn't kidding even in the slightest. My face was getting to its normal tomato red, and I was all business. And he sheepishly put his head down and walked over to me and gave me the glove. Our team ended up uh, winning the game, and uh, no one talked about this incident. <laughs> no one brought it up with me. Nobody was, like, talking about it amongst themselves. There's no, like, s crazy whispers in the corner. It was just, it blew over. Until the next morning, it's 8.30, and I'm looking around the classroom, and Sam isn't there. And then it's, it's 8.35, and Sam still isn't there. And 8.40 comes by, and finally, 8.45 rolls around, and I look outside the classroom, and and Sam's dad's there, and just behind him, barely peeking out from behind him, is Sam, too afraid to come into this classroom, this place that should be nothing but a safe learning environment for him. So his dad presses onward and goes in and finds my teacher and says, you know, my son was afraid to come to school today. Do you know why that is? And Nicole's beside herself. She has no idea. She says, I'm so sorry. Please tell me, what can I do? What happened? Who did this? And he just looked at her and said, one of your students threatened to fucking kill my son. <laughs> and I'm watching all of this happen, and I'm sinking further and deeper into my chair because I, I know what's coming. Ever since I looked into the hallway and saw... Sam hiding behind his dad, I started to try to think of some sort of excuse or, or, or rationale for my actions, and I was coming up completely empty. I had nothing. After a few more seconds of sinking, Nicole rescued me and told me that I would be off to go visit my old friend, Principal George. 
Now, we got down to George's office, and this time he had another idea in mind. He, he didn't want just my apology. He had this dream of an Oslo Accords moment of Yasser and Yitzhak coming together on the front lawn and smiling and shaking hands and breezing past years of intractable problems with just this foolhardy smile, mustache, and handshake. And I was all too willing to give it to him. I jumped up and said, Sam, I'm so sorry. This will never happen again. And extended my hand out. And Sam, he was too new. He didn't want to get a reputation for being a, a stick in the mud or, or some sort of snitch. And so he apprehensively reached out his hand and, and shook mine back. And, and we left the room. And I eluded punishment. Uh, if you're concerned, Sam today is a Division I lacrosse goalie. Uh, so I imagine the incidents that occurred in fourth grade would go down somewhat differently if it were to happen again. Um, not that I'm not a force to be reckoned with, but I'm about as physically intimidating as like an easy bake oven. Like, you could burn yourself maybe a little bit, but that would be the end of the encounter. You would just close it up and walk away. But even though I escaped formal punishment, I'll really never be able to erase the image of Sam cowering behind his father, afraid to come into a classroom where I myself had felt attacked and alienated because of words that I had screamed at him in a moment of fury. I, I, it was the first time in my life where I was truly embarrassed to be in my own skin, and I could think of no words to defend my actions. That was my mistake. Thank you. And this is Toad the Wet Sprocket behind me now with their first album of new stuff since 1997 and sounding as fresh as ever. Go get it. The album and the song we're hearing now are both called New Constellation. And before we get back to the Brown and RISD stories, I wanted to say a word about Hulu Plus. You've probably tried Hulu uh, but now you can watch your favorite shows and movies anytime, anywhere. Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of selections on your TV or your smartphone or your tablet, wherever. It all streams in HD. You can check out exclusive content, including Hulu Originals, like The Awesomes, starring SNL's Seth Meyers, or Moon Boy, starring Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids. For only $7.99 a month, you can stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. And right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. That's HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. Also, with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office with the traffic and the parking and the whatnot. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can do everything you do at the post office, but right from your own computer and printer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage. Print it up for any letter or package. I use Stamps.com. You should, too. Right now, get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now let's get back to the Brown RISD show with a story from RISD student Hanya Ansari. 
It's a story we call Street Smarts. Um, I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. It's a place I'm deeply attached to and will always call home. Decoding the Pakistani culture is a little bit complicated because of the diversity that we're blessed with, which is one of the things that I love about the city because everyone has a story to tell. The story that I'm about to tell takes place in a time where the violence in the city was escalating, and it was mostly gang-related violence between criminal mobs and like petty street thugs. So... Every so often you would hear of a friend or a relative who'd been robbed in the streets or had their phone or wallet taken away from them. One of my uncles had been robbed so many times that he started keeping a cheap phone and an extra stash of cash separate from his smartphone and his wallet so that he would have something to give when they ask him for things. One thing that he always told me was that you should always have something to give because it's almost worse if you don't because they might not believe you and then try to hurt you. At this point in my life, I was a junior in high school, and even though I loved my city, my parents were very keen on sending me to the college in the States. So I was enrolled in a whole bunch of AP classes, and one of these was AP Calculus. And this was a subject that I was having the most difficulty with, but I'm very blessed to come from a family who's very willing to provide me with the resources that I need to succeed. So I enrolled in these after-school classes, and... The other thing that they provided me with was a TI-89. I don't know if you guys had a TI-89 in high school or a TI-84, but you guys probably know it has like a million buttons and is super expensive. Um, so one day, my boyfriend and I just decided to skip one of the after-school classes and decided to go out to eat instead. So we went to this roadside restaurant, and it's not like a proper restaurant. You kind of just have to pick up the food and eat in the car. So he parked the car, and he went in and I was waiting in the car. And the mistake that both him and I made was that he forgot to lock his side of the driver's door, and it didn't occur to me to lock it from the inside because I was too busy playing around with the radio. So moments after he went in, the driver's side of the door opened again, and I thought that my boyfriend had come back. I thought that maybe he forgot something in the car or whatever. So I turned to look, and there's this strange young man staring back at me. And he was about my age, and he was dressed in the traditional garment. Um, and he had this very rushed look on his face, and he kept jerking his hand back and forth, and he kept saying, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And it, ha- it was so absurd and confusing, and I didn't even have time to process the situation. I was about to ask him, do you need help? Are you okay? But before I could even say anything, I saw from under his shirt, he pulled out something metal, something shiny, and... He took this object and shoved it against my head, and it hit me that this was a gun. At that point, my whole body just froze, and I remember the air becoming really thick. I wasn't even afraid. I think I just became numb. And so with this gun on my head, the gravity of the situation hit me, and I I immediately just started trying to think, um, what could I give him? And the words of my uncle kept repeating in my head that you should always have something to give. At that point, I didn't even own a phone, and I didn't even have any money on me. So in a very automatic motion, my hand just reached into my backpack, and I I took out the first thing that I could find, and it was my TI-89, and I just put it in his hand. Um, But but he got really mad at me. He grunted at me. He said, is this a joke? You're going to give me a calculator? And as he said this, he shoved the gun harder into my head, and any other time I would probably think I would be silenced out of fear but somehow when he did that it kind of snapped a bit of courage in me to reason with him and I said no 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 I don't mean to offend you this is really expensive it's more expensive than most phones so he was just looking at me he was looking at the calculator and I guess he was trying to consider the situation and while this was happening I noticed that behind him he had a partner outside and he also kind of bent into the car and I guess he was trying to rush the guy with the gun they just wanted to get over the job and get over with it and go run away as fast as possible I wasn't sure if they had seen my boyfriend before they came but I was hoping to get this over with as fast as possible too because if my boyfriend came back then we would be in a real situation because He was a foreigner, and usually they think that foreigners have more money. So I just didn't want him to get into a bigger problem. I thought they might even take him away or whatever. But then the gunman kind of shushed his partner. I guess he had a bit of authority over him. 
And the next thing he did was really strange. Instead of bending in through the door as he had been doing, he kind of got into the car. He sat in the driver's seat. He slowly removed the gun from my head. He placed the calculator on my lap. And then he turned to me and he said, teach me how to use this. Now, I finally remembered to breathe after the gun was removed from my head. And I was trying to think, what does he mean, teach me how to use this? Because even I didn't know everything about this very advanced machine. And as you guys know, I was already struggling with the subject. So um, um, I thought... I thought maybe I should show him the graphing function because it's this visual element that most calculators don't have. Um, and so I just tried, I was, the whole point was basically just to show him that this was not like a $1 60 rupee calculator, like this was really legit. Um, so uh, I just started trying to think of like any function I could put in a graph and just like the stress of the situation. It took me so long to come up with something, but the, I remember what I finally came up with was x to the power of 4 minus 2, and I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I put this into the calculator, and then the screen kind of drew the curve, and I turned it, and I showed it to him, and he observed it, and then he told me to go back to the page where I'd put in the value, so I did that for him. And to my surprise, he took the calculator from me and he started putting in values himself and graphing them. And here I thought, wait, so these guys have an educational background. And I guess that moment kind of dissolved the tension a little bit because it reminded me of a time in the past where I used to work for this nonprofit and they ran a night school for kids who'd be working in the day or begging or even robbing like these guys were. So in a way, I could almost give them a role in my head or picture them. And I guess at that moment I felt less flustered and I, could, I felt I could maybe engage with them. And as all of this was going on in my head, he kind of caught me off guard. He asked me this question that went along the lines of how do you find the optimization of certain value or something or the other? And I didn't even know the answer to that. So obviously he was more advanced than me. And um, so I told him, uh, I don't know how to do that, but I downloaded Minesweeper on this if you want to see it. <laughs> So I showed I showed it to him and he he admitted that it was pretty cool and um, very abruptly he then just started to leave from the car and I and I said to him I was like aren't you gonna take the calculator and and he said uh, it's all right and he said it's nothing personal and he just started to leave and at, at, at that at that moment I don't know I had this like motivation to just give it to him because. I was so impressed with his knowledge. He knew so much more than me. And I think usually when these guys steal things, they get phones, they get wallets, and these things go into the black market. But him getting this calculator as a gift from me rather than something that he stole might mean something different. So I insisted that he take it. And, and he did. And he started to leave with his partner without saying a word. And as soon as they were out of sight, I like jumped to like lock the doors of the car and I was just like sitting there and I was shaking and my heart was throbbing and my fingers were sweating and I was just waiting for my boyfriend to come back. And when he finally did, I told him, you missed the big show. <laughs> Thank you. Our final storyteller tonight is another lovely lady from RISD. Welcome to the stage, Daisy Hook. She lay asleep in my bed, her hair glistening in the candlelight, and Forrest and I slid down off the bed onto my furry rug in front of my candlelit fire. This rich silence filled the room and I was so content I met Lucy in my fall semester course she was smart and intelligent and had this really sexy butt and I really liked her immediately immediately crushing so hard on her and we always wanted to hang out it didn't happen but we always wanted to until six or seven months later May when I bumped into her at this swanky bar and we're downstairs and we're both pretty drunk and we run up to each other and we hug and we're excited and she tells me she just recently broke up with her asshole of a boy... He really was an asshole of a boyfriend. 
I'm really happy she did. Um, and she's like, oh, I need a new adventure. I want to do new things. I went upstairs to get another gin and tonic. And while I was coming back downstairs, all of a sudden I feel this hand reach out and grab my arm. And I turn. And it's her. It's Lucy. And she's standing there. And she, she's a little bit drunk, but she's so cute. And she goes, do you like girls? <laughs> because we should hang out. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm at her house. Um, she's having a birthday party for her roommate or something like that. And she introduces me to a series of unforgettable, completely forgettable people. <laughs> <laughs> Except one, Forrest. Forrest looks like he could fell a tree in your backyard and make a table and then make sweet love to you on that table all in one day. He is burly and he's awesome. <laughs> At some point in the night, the night's progressed, as has our tequila intake, and I'm standing in the corner of the room, and I'm trying to figure out the next cool song to play for people to dance to, and I feel this presence, and I turn, and it's Lucy. And she picks up our conversation we'd had earlier in the night, and she asks me, you said you like being with girls, like, tell me more about that. I don't know if it was the amount of tequila I drank, or the fact that I had my crush standing in front of me, But I didn't say much. I reach out my arm, I wrap it around her back, and I look at her and I say, I can't tell you, but I can show you. (laughs) (laughs) And I kissed her, and she kissed me back, and it was a sweet moment. And she she pulls away, she kind of grins and and walks away, and she's like, "I I have to get another glass of wine, I'll be right back. She comes back, and she has this new look on her face. She wants to tell me something, I can tell. She comes up and she says, you remember that guy I introduced you to earlier on? Forrest? I'm like, yeah, of course I remember Forrest. (laughs) And uh, she says, well, him and I have been hooking up for a few weeks now, and we're wondering if you would like to join us tonight. (laughs) And on the outside, I'm keeping it cool, but on the inside, I'm thinking, shit like oh my god like I thought it was gonna be with her but now this is big it's a threesome (laughs) and I go yeah (laughs) moments later we're leaving the party and we're heading to Forrest's apartment who's getting it ready for us and we enter the room and he's standing there like this like excited, right? This is this guy's wet dream come true. Um, and he, between his sculpture and his artwork and his clothes that are lying around are these mattresses and these, these blankets and these pillows and it sounds creepy, but it wasn't as creepy as it sounds. It really wasn't. But on a more serious note, it was the first time I saw the two of them together. And they were like two liquids going down the same stream. Their energy was perfect. They functioned so well. I couldn't believe that they had just been dating. And that same way of being, they carried over into our sex that night. It was amazing. I've been in threesomes before. This blew the others out of the park. Everything was perfect. It went well. I mean, like, we just knew what to do everything. Like, there was no awkwardness. I left the next morning, and I didn't see them for a while after that until this food fair where Forrest was managing one of this, the things, and he, ha- he was standing there, and he has this plate in his hand. I grab it from him, and as I do, his hand brushes over my hand, and I look up, and he just has this big grin on his face, and I turn, and I see in the distance Lucy, and she has that same grin on her face. <laughs> And I do too. I have that same grin. And the three of us share this grin together. And I know that what we had was pretty significant. Summer comes and goes. And I don't see them for a while. I don't really talk to them or anything. But when school starts up again, so does what we had in the beginning. We, we actually start a relationship. We come together. And it's very much them and me. But it isn't when we're together. When we're together, it's us. And they just started dating. It wasn't like they were boyfriend and girlfriend already. They were just starting this out. And I was at the beginning of this. I got to see the two of them really manifest and come together. And I needed this because this came at a time when I 
you know, stability isn't something I'm really used to. I have lived in three countries. I have lived in 18 houses. I have gone to 11 different schools. The list goes on. So stability comes in me. I carry my own stability. I'm not used to having people hold my stability for me. And they did. And they were so good to me. And they were, they were always there when I needed them. And I really started falling in love with the two of them. It was more than just that threesome so many nights ago. One night, they came over my apartment. I had been so upset for a week. School was stressing me out. I was really heartbroken over how much work I had. And they came, and they brought me wine. And it wasn't sex. It was they just stayed with me all night long. And they held me, and they talked to me, and they made sure I was okay. And this is when I realized this is really real. Like They really love me. I knew Lucy better, but I got to New Forest, too. And... Um, one morning after Forrest and Lucy and them had stayed over, Forrest and I were making breakfast and Lucy had to go to class first. Forrest and I sat down on my balcony and we were having breakfast and he talks to me about his family. And it turns out that him and I have basically the same family situation. And I don't share that with many people. And he didn't share that with Lucy. And it was something that him and I, it bonded us. And we really had like these moments where we knew that we belonged together. I would go and I'd be with Lucy and I would see she was, she was kind of predisposed, like very energetic, really excited, you know? And I saw her become grounded and her work became better and she talked to me about how she could not do that without Forrest. No way could she. And I would go visit Forrest in his studio and he would show me his work. And one time he looked at me and he goes, everything I do is for her everything. Do you see my work? I became the keeper of these secrets, these, these secrets of love. I don't think many people get to experience that. I was not just their sexual buddy, you know? I was really someone that they trusted with the deepest secrets. And Forrest told me that day, he told me, don't tell her. Don't tell Lucy I said that. I don't need her knowing that. I want her to feel that. One thing they gave me that I don't think is, you know, you can't even put into words really is the trust they gave me. They trusted me not to ruin their relationship. It's different to be friends with a couple than to actually sleep with them, to be with them in so many ways. And I promised I wouldn't break that. I was not going to break their relationship. And this was hard because Lucy was a senior and Forrest and I were both juniors. This meant that we had to know that Lucy was going to leave one day. She wasn't always going to be with us. And we had, we had never really ever talked about what we were doing. Like, I know that seems crazy. Like, no, like at no point did we talk about what was happening. It just functioned. It just happened. It was so smooth. It was so real and so raw. And there was no need to put it into words. We just never felt it because it wasn't breaking up. I never hurt them. But one night, it was January, so this has been going on for a while, you know, and it was January the next, next year, and there was this party happening, or we were going out to a party, I can't remember completely, but we were in my room, Lucy and I, and Forrest and our other friends were in the other rooms, and Lucy, I think everything that had happened piled up to that moment, and she broke down, and she looked at me, and she, she, she started crying. She, she was so scared. She had never verbalized her fears until that moment. She looked at me. She said, I don't, I can't, I don't know what to do. I'm leaving. Like, I'm leaving this guy. I'm leaving this guy I love, and I'm going to break, I have to break up with him. I can't burden him. I can't keep him down. Like, I feel like I'm keeping him from doing his work. I feel like, I feel like I'm stopping him and halting him, and like, I don't know what to do. And, and she got really frantic and really upset, and I hadn't seen her like this before. And it was the worst because she was so scared also that I would be with Forrest when she left. And it was weird because here I was, I was now her best friend and her lover, and she was confiding to me her fear of me breaking the relationship that she had with Forrest. But then also she needed me because I was her friend. And I held her. And this was the one moment that me being the medium of love between them had its biggest significance because I held her and I picked her up and I said, you cannot break up with him. You cannot break up with him. And I held her by her shoulders and I looked at her and I was like, you don't know how much he loves you. And I told her the secrets that Forza told me. 
even though he had told me not to tell her. I told her, look, all the work he does is for you. And I went down the list, and I told her everything. And she sat there, and the tears started to dry up. And she, you know, and this is, it's so hard to see someone you love. I loved her so much, and to see her so pained and so scared that I could hurt her, hurt me too, because I love, and I still love them so, so much. These are people that changed my life. And she said, okay. She didn't break up with them. I pulled away from the sex after that. I didn't want them to fear that I would ever hurt them because I really wanted them to be together. I have never met anyone my age that in love. And I don't know if it's because I was that much a part of their relationship, but to see that, to see people like that love each other, to see them in bed, the looks that they gave each other, I have never seen that on anyone. May came and Lucy graduated. But I was, really, I was really right about something. They were meant for each other. They're still together today. They're still my best friends. Thank you. is all for this week's episode this is jules larson and ag behind me now a huge gargantuan enormous thank you to yotam tabul and daisy hook yotam is a student at brown daisy is a student at RISD, and the two of them helped me produce that show perhaps you could be the student on your campus to do what they did write to me at Kevin at risk-show.com. Thanks also to Hulu Plus, where you binge on thousands of hit TV shows and movies anytime, anywhere on your TV, PC, smartphone, or tablet. Get an extended free trial of Hulu Plus when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. That's HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. Don't forget, we have Risk live shows in New York and Los Angeles once a month. And this month, they are both on Thursday, November 21st, 2013. If you're in Los Angeles, you got to jump in on Beowulf Jones Storytelling Workshop. That's on the 23rd and the 24th of November. The first one he taught out there was a huge success. Beowulf is the producer of the Risk Live show out there. You've heard him tell magnificent stories here on the podcast many a time. And you can find out about that and all our other workshops, including our one-on-one online Skyping or our online video lecture course that you can take in your own time, Storytelling for Business. Check it all out at thestorystudio.org. And hey, here is a super easy but super helpful thing that all Risk fans could do for us. Contact your local public radio station and tell them that you want to hear the Risk True Stories for the Holidays special that's at prx.org. That's Public Radio Exchange. The Risk True Stories for the Holidays episode is just waiting there to be picked up by local public radio stations. So call or email yours and request it. And don't forget that Risk is listener-supported. We're a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. If you would like to help keep Risk running, just go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your donation for Risk. Well, with all that said, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's okay. Just-
Once upon a time, there was an angry little red bird. He was the angriest little red bird you ever saw. He was angry at all kinds of things. Stop stealing my stuff! I'll fucking kill you! Then he would go away saying, Fucking bitch! <laughs> <laughs> 